Chapter 16 of Mr. Incool's Misadventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. Please visit my blog at mattbutchershop.blogspot.com. Mr. Incool's Misadventure by Edgar Saltis. Chapter 16. The Bear Bodkin. Presently Lennox found himself on the boulevard. There was a café near at hand, and he sat down at one of the tables that lined the sidewalk. He was dazed, as were he in the semi-consciousness of somnambulism. He gave an order absently, and when some drink was placed before him, he took it at a gulp. Under its influence his stupor fell from him. The necessity, the obligation of proving his innocence presented itself, but, with it, hand in hand, came the knowledge that such proof was impossible. Even his luck at play would be taken as corroboratory of the charge. Were he to say that the marked cards had been placed on the talion by Incoul, who was there outside the aisles of the insane that would listen to such a defense, to compel attention he would be obliged to explain the act and state its reason, and that explanation he could never give. He could not exculpate himself at the cost of a woman's fame. Whichever way he turned, dishonor stood before him. The toils into which he had fallen had been woven with a cunning so devilish in its clairvoyance that every avenue of escape was closed. He was blockaded in his own disgrace. He rested his head in his hand and moaned aloud. Presently, with the instinct of a hunted beast, he felt that people were looking at him and feared that some of his former acquaintances, on leaving the club, had passed and seen him sitting there, and among them, perhaps in cool. He threw some money in the saucer and hurried away. There were still many people about. To avoid them, he turned into a side street and walked on with rapid step. Soon he was in the Rue de la Paix. It was practically deserted. On a corner, a young ruffian in a slouch hat was humming, Eugene, tu me fais languir, and beating time to the measure with his foot. Just above the Colonne Vendôme, the moon rested like a vagrant, weary of its amble across the sky, but otherwise the street was solitary. Through its entire length but one shop was open, and as Lennox approached it, a man came out to arrange the shutters. From the doorway a thin stream of light still filtered on the pavement. In the window were globes filled with colored liquids, and beyond at a counter a clerk was tying a parcel. Lennox entered. "'Give me a privacy,' he said, and when the clerk had done so he asked him to make up a certain prescription. But to this the man objected. He could not, he explained, without a physician's order. Here are several, said Lennox, and he took from his card case a roll of azure notes. The clerk eyed them nervously. They represented over a year's salary. He hesitated a moment. I don't know, and he shook his head as were he arguing with himself. I don't know whether I am doing right, and at once prepared the mixture. Ten minutes later, Lennox was mounting the stair of the hotel at which he lodged. On reaching his room, he put his purchases on a table, poured out a glass of absinthe, lit a cigarette, and threw himself down on a lounge. For while his thoughts roamed among the episodes of the day, but gradually they drifted into less personal currents, he began to think of the early legends, of Chiron the god renouncing his immortality, of the Hyperboreans, that fabled people, famous for their felicity, who voluntarily threw themselves into the sea, of Juno bringing death to Beton and Cleobis, as the highest recompense of their piety, of Agamedes and Trophonius praying Apollo for whatever gift he deemed most advantageous, and in answer to the prayer, 
receiving eternal sleep. He reflected on the meaning of these legends, and as he reflected he remembered that the Thracians greeted birth with lamentations and death with welcoming festivals. He thought of that sage who pitied the gods because their lives were unending, and of Menander singing the early demise of the favored. He remembered how Plato had preached to the happiest people in the world the blessedness of ceaseless sleep. How the Buddha, teaching that life was but a right to suffer, had found for the recalcitrant no greater menace than that of an existence renewed through calpus of time. Then he bethought him of the promise of that peace, which passeth all understanding, and which the grave alone fulfills, and he repeated to himself Christ's significant threat, In this life ye shall have tribulation. And as these things came to him, so too did the problem of pain. He reviewed the ravages of that ulcer which has battened on humanity since the world began. History uncoiled itself before him in a shudder. In its spasms he saw the myriads that have fought and died for dogmas that they did not understand, for invented principles of patriotism and religion, for leaders that they had never seen, for gods more helpless than themselves. He saw, too, nature's cruelty and her snares. The gift to man of appetites, which in the guise of pleasure, veil immedicable pain, poison in the richest flowers, the agony that lurks in the grape. He knew that whoso ate to his hunger, or drank to his thirst, summoned to him one or more of countless maladies, maladies which parents gave with their vices to their children, who in turn bring forth new generations that are smitten with all the ills to which flesh is heir. And he knew that even those who lived most temperately were defenseless from disorders that come unawares and frighten away one's nearest friends. While for those who escaped miasmas and microbes, for those who asked pleasure, not of the flesh, but of the mind, for those whose days are passed in study, who seek to learn some rhyme for the reason of things, who try to gratify the curiosity which nature has given them, for such as they, he remembered, there is blindness, paralysis, and the asylums of the insane. He thought of the illusions, of love, hope, and ambition, illusions which make life seem a pleasant thing worth living, and which, in cheating man into a continuance of his right to suffer, make him think pain an accident and not the rule. Surely, he mused, the idiot alone is content. He at least has no illusions. He expects nothing in this world and cares less for another. Nor is the stupidity of the ordinary run of men without its charm. It must be a singularly blessed thing not to be sensitive, not to know what life might be, and not to find its insufficiency a curse. But there's the rub. When the reforms of the utopists are one and all accomplished, what shall man do in his Icaria? A million years hence, perhaps, physical pain will have been vanquished. Diseases of the body will no longer exist. Laws will not oppress. Justice will be inherent. Love will be too far from nature to know of shame. The earth will be a garden of pleasure. Industry will have enriched every home. Through an equitable division of treasures acquired without toil, each one will be on the same footing as his neighbor. Even envy will have disappeared. In place of the trials, terrors, and superstitions of today, man will enjoy perfect peace. He will no longer labor. When he journeys, it will be through the air. He will be in daily communication with Mars. He will have measured the infinite, and know the bounds of space. And in this Eden in which there will be no forbidden fruit, no ignorance, no tempter, but where there will be larger flowers, new perfumes, and a race whose idea of beauty stands to mine as mine does to that of prehistoric man, 
a race whose imagination has crossed the frontiers of the impossible, who have developed new senses, who see colors to which I am blind, who hear music to which I am deaf, who speak in words of tormented polish, who have turned art into a plaything and learning into a birthright, a race that has no curiosity and who accept their wonderful existence as the rich today accept their wealth. In this Eden, boredom will be king. The Hyperboreans will have their imitators. The one surcease will be in death, yet even that may not be robbed of its grotesqueness. A candle flickered a moment and expired in a splutter of grease. The agony of the candle aroused him from his reverie. Bah, he muttered, I am becoming a casuist. I agree with myself. He mixed himself another absinthe, holding the carafe high in the air, watching the thin stream of water coalesce with the green drug and turn with it into an opalescent milk. He toyed for a moment with the purchases that he had made in the Rue de la Paix, and presently, in answer to some query which they evoked, the soliloquy began anew. After what has happened, there is nothing left. I might change my name. I might go to Brazil or Australia. But with what object? I could not get away from myself. Dami stesso, sempre fugendo, avrò mi sempre appresso. Besides, I don't care for transplantation. If I had an ambition, it would be a different matter. If I could be a pretty woman up to thirty, a cardinal up to fifty, and after that the Antichrist, it might be worth while, failing that I might occupy myself with literature. If I have not written heretofore, it is because it seems more original not to do so. But it is not too late. The manufacture of trash is easy, and it must be a pleasure to the manufacturer to know that it is trash and that it sells. It must give him a high opinion of the intellect of his contemporaries. Or when, as happens now and then, a work of enduring value is produced, and it is condemned, as such works usually are, the author must take immense delight in the reflection that the disapproval of imbeciles is the surest acknowledgment of talent, as it is also its sweetest meed of praise. For me, of course, such praise is impossible. Were I to write successful failures, it must needs be under a pseudonym, in which case I would have the consciousness of being scorned as Lennox Lee and admired as John Smith. Beside, what is there to write about? There is nothing to prove, there is no certainty, there is not even a criterion of truth. Tomorrow contradicts yesterday. Next week will contradict this. On no given subject are there two people who think and see exactly alike. The book which pleases me bores my neighbor, and vice versa. One man holds to the Episcopal Church, another to the Baptist. One man is an atheist, another a Jew. One man thinks a soprano voice a delicious gift. Another says it is a disease of the larynx. And whatever the divergence of opinion may be, each one is convinced that he alone is correct. Supposing, however, that through some chance I were to descend to posterity in the garb and aspect of a great man. What is a great man? The shadow of nothing. The obscurest privat docent in Germany could today give points to Newton, and even though Newton's glory may still subsist, yet such are the limitations of fame that the great majority have never heard of it or of him. The foremost conqueror of modern times, he who fell not through his defeats but through his victories, is entombed just across the Seine. And the other day, as I passed the Invalids, I heard an intelligent-looking woman ask her companion who the Napoleon was that lay buried there. Her companion did not know. But even were glory more substantial, what is the applause of posterity to the ears of the dead? To them, honor and ignominy must be alike unmeaning. No, decidedly, ambition does not tempt me. What is there else that tempts? 
Love seems to me now like a hunger, an unnecessary affliction, productive far more of pain than of pleasure. The most natural, the most alluring thing of all, see in what plight it has brought me. Yet it is, I have heard, the ultimate hope of those who have none. If I relinquish it, what have I left? The satisfaction of my curiosity as to what the years may hold? But I am indifferent. To revenge myself on Incool? Certainly I would like to cut his heart out and force it down his throat. But how would it better me? if I could be transported to the multicolored nights of other worlds and their taste of inexperienced pleasures, move in new refinements, lose my own identity, or pursue a chimera and catch it, it might be worthwhile. But as it is... The clock on the mantel rang out four times. Again Lennox started from his reverie. He smiled cynically at himself. If I continue in that strain, he muttered, it must be that I am drunk but soon his eyes closed again in mental retrospect. And yet, he mused, life is pleasant. Ill-spent as mine has been, many times I have found it grateful. In books I have often lost the consciousness of my own identity. Now and then music has indeed had the power to take me to other worlds, to show me fresh horizons and larger life. Maida herself came to me like a revelation. She gave me a new conception of beauty. Yes, I have known very many pleasant hours. I was younger then, I fancy. After all, it is not life that is short, it is youth. When that goes, as mine seems to have done, outside of solitude there is little charm in anything. And what is death but isolation? The most perfect and impenetrable that nature has devised. And whether that isolation come to me tonight or decades hence, what matters it? It is odd, though, how the thought of it unnerves me. And yet, to be logical, I suppose one should be as uneasy of the chaos which precedes existence, as of the unknowable that follows it. The proper course, I take it, is to imitate the infant who faces death without a tremor and enters it without regret. He stood up and, drawing the curtains aside, looked out into the night. From below came the rumble of a cart on its way to the halls, but otherwise the street was silent. The houses opposite were livid. There was a faint flicker from the street lamps, and above were the trembling stars. The moon had gone, but there was yet no sign of coming dawn. He left the window. The candles had burned down. He found fresh ones and lighted them. As he did so, he caught sight of himself in the glass. His eyes were haggard and rimmed with circles. It was owing to the position of the candles, he thought, and he raised them above his head and looked again. There was something on his forehead just above the temple, and he put the candles down to brush that something away. He looked again. It was still there. He peered into the glass and touched it with his hand. It was nothing, he found, merely a lock of hair that had turned from black to white. He poured out more absinthe and put the bottle down empty. Before drinking it, he undid the package which he had bought from the chemist. First, he took from it a box about three inches long. In it was a toy syringe, and with it two little instruments. One of these he adjusted in the projecting tube, and with his finger felt carefully of the point. It was sharp as a needle, and beneath the point was an orifice like a shark's mouth, in miniature. Then he took from the package a phial that held a brown liquid, in which he detected a shade like to that of gold. The odor was dull and heavy. He put the phial down and stood for a moment irresolute. He had looked into the past, and now he looked into the future. But in its Arcadias he saw nothing, save his own image suspended from a gibbet. He looked again almost wistfully. No, there was nothing. He threw off his coat and rolled up his sleeve. From the file he filled the syringe, and with the point pricked the bare arm 
and sent the liquid spurting into the flesh. Three times he did this. He reached for the absinthe and left it untasted. Into his veins had come an unknown, a delicious languor. He sank into a chair. The walls of the room dissolved into cataracts of light and dazzling steel. The flooring changed to running crimson, and from that to black, and back to red again. From the ceiling came flood after flood of fused, intermingled, and oscillating colors. His eyes closed. The light became more intense, and burned luminous through the lids. In his ears filtered a harmony, faint as did it come from afar, and singular as were it one from some new consonance of citherns and clavichords, and suddenly it rose into tumultuous vibrations, striated with series of ascending scales. Then it suddenly ceased, drowned in claps of thunder. The lights turned purple and glowed less vividly, as though veils were being lowered between him and them, but still the languor continued, sweeter ever and more enveloping, till, from very sweetness, it was almost pain. The room grew darker, the colors waned, the lights behind the falling veils sank dim and dimmer, fading one by one. A single spark lingered, it wavered a moment, and vanished into night. End of chapter 16 This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. Please visit my blog at mattbutchershop.blogspot.com